Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to get rid of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and also with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome again. Thank you very much for tuning into this show, this podcast. And this was pre-recorded for airing on April the 29th, 2015. Hope that you've been feeling well lately. The first topic on tonight's show is a wonderful essay that I found um, what I'm going to read to you is just this essay written by a columnist, an online columnist, and this is a woman who suffers from depression, and this is basically her first-hand summary of her journey through the illness, and uh, the title of the article is, A Simple Solution for Depression, It Doesn't Exist. And when I read it, I really felt like it made an impression on me. Uh, it reminded me of a lot of the things that I've gone through with trying to help my patients who suffer from depression and hearing a lot of the things that they have tried and struggled with. Uh, it also reminds me that, unfortunately, too many people with depression don't get well and in their attempts to try to feel better, uh, they explore some strategies that often don't really help. And then, unfortunately, the strategies that should help don't. Uh, so basically, I'm just going to read this essay to you uh, because I think it's very eloquent, very powerfully written. And then you know, along the way, we'll emphasize some key points and... Uh, some key takeaways that may help some of you out there who suffer from depression yourselves or perhaps you know someone who does, perhaps someone close to you has struggled with it and uh, not been able to get well. Well, here goes. She writes, T.S. Eliot wrote, We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. I remembered those words as I strolled around the Holistic Health Fair in Annapolis the other day. Presented by the Maryland University of Integrative Health, it occupied three floors of the Lowe's Hotel devoted to massage therapists, acupuncture specialists, detox experts, yoga instructors, 
and professionals from all kinds of local healing and wellness centers. Ironically, they were all the same professionals that I met 10 years ago when at the lowest point of my breakdown, I decided to drop modern science like a boyfriend with bad breath and go the holistic route. I was sure that someone had the one and only solution that would heal me of my inner demons, the magic urn of ancient cat pee that, with only three sniffs of prehistoric urine, could set my psyche back in balance. So I asked everyone I knew, where is the path to the magic urn? And they all pointed me in different directions. I followed all the paths to yoga instructors and acupuncture specialists and massage therapists and recommended naturopaths. I took Chinese herbs and banged magnesium packets against phone books because that's what the instructions said. I paid psychics to describe the color of my aura and to tell me what helpful and frightening things it had to say about my inner life. I listened to tapes of mystic healers like Carolyn Meese as I knelt in child pose in our bedroom closet with a candle lit. I listened to friends and relatives who told me that my medication was toxic, so I weaned off almost all of my drugs. I did not get better. In fact, I got worse and was hospitalized a second time. Like most psychiatrists, mine tried a few combinations of drugs and recommended that I return to psychotherapy. I got a little better, but the remission lasted only two years. Ten years later, I know the hard truth. There is no simple answer to depression. If someone tells you they have the cure, whether it be Prozac or Chinese herbs or an anti-stress oil for $30 or six amazing sessions of therapy, my guess is that they are more concerned about paying their mortgage than being a companion with you along your health journey. No one who has spent less than a year with you can really know what you need to feel better. And if it doesn't require hard work on your part, like getting up in the morning to exercise or eliminating sugar, alcohol, and processed foods from your diet, or exploring some type of relaxation and meditation tool you will use daily to de-stress, it won't last. Unfortunately, nothing worth having comes easy. As I walked around the room the other day, I felt older and wiser. The gray hair framing my face and the crow's feet around my eyes showed the difference between who I was ten years ago and today. But more so, I noticed the newfound confidence I have in my own health philosophies that don't fit neatly into any category holistic or traditional. I embrace both of them and more. Yes, the last 10 years have certainly been an exploration, like Lewis says, 
learning what works, what doesn't, and how to handle the stuff on which I'm mixed. That's why I attended the fair. I knew that some of the services and items being sold at the booth might very well help me manage my illness, but that none of them could possibly claim to be the answer for me, as some of their literature suggested, because my situation is as unique as everyone else walking around the room. Acupuncture did not help me, but I have friends who have benefited from it. The detox bars that can supposedly fix my depression had ingredients that would worsen my mood. However, they might help someone with a sweet tooth who can't stop eating Hershey bars at work. Ten years ago, I would have listened to each person's sales pitch and believed their every word, adjusting my health vision yet again based on some new information. Now I know that I am the expert on my health, not my psychiatrist, or my integrative doctor, or my therapist, or my friends and relatives who are anti-medication. I know what works because I have been dutifully logging the results of things like diet, exercise, and stress reduction tools in a journal for the last 10 years. I have my own reliable data. Psychiatrists offer an important piece of the puzzle, but only a piece. I have yet to find one who talks to patients about the substantial effects of diet on mood or how getting your heart rate into the aerobic zone every day can fend off suicidal thoughts. Most don't talk much about meditation practices or relaxation techniques either. It's not totally their fault. If they take insurance, they don't have time to discuss anything other than medication and recommendations for a psychotherapist. Holistic doctors and naturopaths offer another valuable perspective, but again, only a piece of the puzzle. The herbs and essential oils and relaxation CDs they sell are the easy stuff. What's hard is living your life in a holistic way, which involves daily exercise and lots of trips to the grocery store and taking time to cook. Wanting a bottle of special herbs to bring peace of mind is natural, but it's not going to bring long-term substantial results. Nope, nothing worth having comes easy, and that includes a solution for depression. And the author of that wonderful essay is Therese Borchard. Uh, again, she writes a column online for Everyday Health. Wow, I, I thought that was just so incredibly eloquent and powerful. Uh, a lot of really important points to go over, let's um, go back to some of them. Um, I want to specifically touch on, uh, she talks about things like yoga instructors 
acupuncture specialists, massage therapists, uh, and naturopaths. Okay, well, um, <clears throat> first of all, yoga and uh, meditation, which she also mentions elsewhere in the article. While these practices in and of themselves certainly aren't a solution to depression, uh, the fact that uh, they help people pay attention to uh, their innermost thoughts and uh, mindfulness is very much a part of both uh, yoga and, of course, it's the key point, the central point of meditation. Both of them can be very helpful and powerful tools and promote relaxation for the anxiety that typically accompanies depression. We'll take a break here and come back with more about her article after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. And we're talking about a very eloquent and powerful essay written by a, a health columnist who is a woman who suffered from depression herself. I felt like this was a very 
courageously uh, honest uh, and wonderfully written essay. Another one of the things that she mentioned she tried was acupuncture. She said acupuncture did not help her. <clears throat> Disappointing, but certainly not surprising. Uh, there's been mixed results at best in terms of treatment of depression or anxiety, for that matter, with acupuncture. Uh, certainly not, no evidence strong enough to recommend it as a treatment for depression. Uh, the best evidence for acupuncture as an effective treatment is for pain, especially things like neck and back pain. Uh, but as far as anything else, uh, the results are mixed at best. And also, when it's been studied scientifically and compared with placebo acupuncture, which is where the needles are not inserted according to the proper uh, ancient Chinese techniques, or they're not inserted uh, deeply enough. Either way, a way to create sham acupuncture or a placebo treatment to compare it to real acupuncture. The differences are very few, uh, indicating that what's helpful about the acupuncture session is lying down and relaxing for a period of time with uh, usually soothing music. Now, massage therapy can be very helpful. Again, uh, if someone is very depressed and also anxious, that usually causes muscle tension, for which massage therapy can be helpful. But again, these, uh, along with um, the uh, yoga and meditation, are nice adjunctive treatments. In other words, uh, things that you can and should do to help improve one's mood, but by themselves are not going to be, as she says, not a simple solution for depression. Uh, what a couple of other things about her essay stand out to me. Uh, her friends and relatives said her medication was bad for her and to get off of it. So she listened to those uninformed, ignorant, poisonous recommendations, and look what happened to her. She got worse and had a second hospitalization. Well, I have news for you. Um, any given person in that situation could have suffered worse consequences than that. In other words, um, there have been cases where people will listen to their family's toxic messages about their medications, telling them to stop it, and uh, suffer a relapse of depression, become suicidal, and commit suicide. So fortunately, that did not happen to this woman. Uh, but again, <clears throat> She knew better herself what she needed, which was even though the medication provides perhaps only temporary, perhaps only mixed results, that she does need to take some. Now, um, she also emphasizes in the article that getting up early to exercise and being careful about diet is key along with relaxation and meditation tools, that it isn't just any one of these things that doing all of them can really help someone who suffers from severe depression and struggles to get relief to get through the illness. 
That sounds like a lot of work to feel well. You're right. It is. But, you know, I can tell you from my perspective as a psychiatrist, it's so rare that I see someone who comes to see me and they're just taking one medicine and they're feeling fine, their depression is gone, they don't particularly exercise much, they're not especially careful about their diet, they're not doing any therapy or meditation or yoga or anything else, and yet they feel perfectly fine. That does happen, but unfortunately it's such a rare exception that when it does, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I'm so glad for you that you're feeling well because it stands out. It's, it's a rare thing. Uh, for this woman who has suffered from it from, for 10 years or more, she has realized that she has to do everything in order to try to feel well. <clears throat> now, one of her frustrations that she expresses is that there are not many psychiatrists, or she hasn't found any, who would do any more than just put a patient on medication and or recommend psychotherapy. Well, I'm sure that's true. Um, and, you know, I freely admit I've been guilty of that myself. Uh, but I would like to think that since there's so much that I've seen uh, helpful in terms of exercise, diet, and uh, relaxation promoted therapies like yoga and uh, mindfulness meditation that I do recommend these things to my patients. Um, not trying to say I'm better or different than anyone else, but I do think that the more people do for themselves to promote mental health, the better off they're going to be, that it isn't just about taking medication. Uh, psychotherapy is very important, and um, but it has to be the right fit. <clears throat> I mean, the problem with psychotherapy is you have to find a competent therapist who understands you and gives you what you need. Some people need just a listener. Some people need someone who's more reflective and interactive and it has to be the right person. And then, of course, there's the question of paying for it or not. Psychotherapy is not cheap, and health insurance companies don't like paying for it. And when and if they do, they tend to limit how many sessions they'll pay for and how much they'll pay for each session, such that it's even very difficult most of the time to find a therapist who accepts health insurance. <clears throat> And as far as going to yoga classes, that costs money too. Um, mindfulness meditation, once you learn the techniques, doesn't cost anything. Let's look at exercise. Well, if you're talking about belonging to a gym, of course, that's an expense. Um, or having equipment in your home. But fortunately, you don't have to do anything that elaborate when it comes to getting the mental health benefits from aerobic exercise. Investing in a good pair of athletic shoes and 
running or walk, jogging or walking even uh, on your own will do the trick just fine. And then there's the dietary aspect of this. This is absolutely very important. And I do get this question a lot from my patients. What should I eat or not uh, to help with my depression? And uh, it's a very good question. It's an important question because, you know, the saying garbage in, garbage out means if you're eating poorly, you should not expect to feel well physically or mentally. Now, what do we mean by poorly? If you're eating a lot of fat, if you're eating a lot of sugar, if you're eating fast food or fried food or eating out a lot. It's just like the author of the article says. You have to be willing to go to the grocery store to buy healthy food. You have to be willing to cook. If you are careful about the food you buy, you prepare it yourself, you eat at home more often, you eat a diet low in fat, no processed sugar, and healthy leafy green vegetables high in antioxidants. Fresh fruits, especially berries, very high in antioxidants. Lean meats and lots of fish. Fish is brain food. Um, nuts, beans, um, again, high in, in healthy nuts, high in healthful uh, fats and uh, that are good for the cell membranes in the brain. And Beans, which also are high in, in vitamins and antioxidants and help lower your cholesterol. This is a way to eat well for physical health and mental health both. But eating healthy isn't cheap. That's another problem we have in this country. If, if you're poor, all you can afford it to eat uh, cheaply is pretty unhealthy food, processed food, high in Sodium, fat, and sugar, it takes uh, a pretty decent amount of uh, income to be able to afford healthy, fresh, unprocessed food, and that is also a problem. But again, I've, to get back to this, this essay and the tenor and tone of it, I think that a holistic approach to treatment of depression is very important but let's be clear about the word holistic okay because some people have a different impression of what that word means um, in some contexts holistic means anything but modern medicine um, and that's not what the author of this essay is saying that's not what I'm saying holistic means comprehensive approach, not just looking at one aspect. It isn't just taking antidepressant medication. It isn't just going to see a therapist. It isn't just exercise. It isn't just diet. It isn't just relaxation techniques, yoga, mindfulness, meditation. It's all of those things. Now, I will say I really think that as far as the naturopath is concerned, um, it depends very much on which one you go see, whether they have some helpful ideas or not. 
those who will tell you not to take medication from a physician, uh, obviously that's not going to be helpful. Those who would try to find things to complement what your physician is recommending, I think would be uh, more helpful. <clears throat> now, hopefully this will help some of you who listen to this item in your struggles to get through depression. It is not easy. It takes a lot of work. All right, we're, we're going to take a look at mindfulness when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host and your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Well, in the previous uh, two segments of the show, we examined a very eloquent essay about one woman's struggle for 10 years uh, with depression and all the various methods that she has explored to try to get relief from her depression, uh, one of them being meditation. And there is a huge amount of buzz lately about mindfulness meditation. Uh, <clears throat> and so I came across this article 
about mindfulness therapy, that uh, a study found that it could be as good as medication to treat chronic depression. And now, we know that there are some people for whom medication doesn't work. Uh, It's very sad, but unfortunately, there are too many people for whom, no matter what we psychiatrists do, their depression does not get better with medication. And it's actually not news at all that there are some forms of cognitive behavioral therapy which provide better and longer-lasting relief from depression uh, than do medic- than does medication. Uh, but this article looks specifically at mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy, or MBCT, uh, saying it may be just as effective as antidepressants in helping people uh, with chronic depression. Uh, helping them not to relapse in their depression. Um, The depression being one of the most common forms of mental illness, affecting more than 350 million people worldwide, is ranked by the World Health Organization as the leading cause of disability globally. And as you know, treatment usually involves either medication, some form of psychotherapy, or a combination of both, and as we just talked about, many patients fail to get better, and they also suffer recurring bouts of illness. Now, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was developed to help such people by teaching them skills to recognize and respond constructively to thoughts and feelings associated with relapse, aiming to prevent a downward spiral into depression. In the first large study to compare mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and antidepressants, researchers found little difference between the two treatments in terms of outcomes. In terms of cost, mindfulness training, often viewed as more costly because it requires more time with a trained therapist, was not significantly more pricey, particularly when given in group sessions. Well, the key, I think, here is a trained therapist, Uh, a therapist who's adequately trained and skilled in this highly specialized form of cognitive therapy is not something you're going to find that easily. Uh, If you just go online and do a search for a therapist or you go to your insurance website and do a provider search for a therapist, um, there's no guarantee that you're going to come across someone who has the proper training and skills to do this very specialized type of therapy. Now, while the current standard treatment for chronic depression is to keep taking antidepressants, many people don't want to take them for long periods, and others want to avoid side effects. Now, of course, we physicians feel that even if someone still is depressed, although they take your medication, uh, of course, our bias is that they're better off staying on it anyway. 
because they conceivably could do worse without it. But clearly there is a need for better and longer lasting relief for a lot of people. And <clears throat> certainly if the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy could provide that, it would be tremendously helpful to many, many people. Now in this particular study we're talking about, 424 adults with recurrent major depression who were on maintenance antidepressant drugs were randomly assigned either to come off their antidepressants slowly and receive mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or to stay on their medication. While 212 patients continued taking their antidepressants, the other 212 attended eight group mindfulness therapy sessions and were given daily home practice as well as an option to have four follow-up sessions over a 12-month period. Study results published in the medical journal The Lancet, uh, the article came out on April 14th, showed that after two years, relapse rates were similar in both groups. In other words, uh, in both the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy group and the medication group, the relapse of depression over the two years was similar. 44% in the therapy group suffered a relapse of depression versus 47% in the antidepressant medication group, uh, slightly higher with the medication, as you may note. However, the difference between the two is not considered significant, at least not statistically. So while this study doesn't show that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy works any better than maintenance antidepressant medication in reducing the rate of relapse of depression, these results suggest that it may be a new choice for the millions of people with recurrent depression on repetitive chronic prescriptions. In other words, the point the authors are making is that, well, you know, if you stay on medication or if you come off of it and do the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and the rates of relapse of depression are the same, then why not just do the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy? Uh, I would have to say that uh, this is powerful evidence and... <clears throat> What I would like to see is a study of combining the two uh, to see if there was an additive or synergistic benefit of doing both. In other words, would you prevent relapse even better if you did both medication and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy? Now, other studies of depression with other types of cognitive behavioral therapy in the past have not shown this to be the case. In other words, other studies that where the subjects did combine medication and cognitive therapy didn't show any added benefit. Uh, but whether the mindfulness-based therapy would be any different might be interesting to look at. Uh, <clears throat> another way of looking at the study results is that, let's say you're 
dealing with a population of depressed patients who just never had any sufficient response to medication at all. And again, uh, unfortunately, there is a small, sad, hard core of patients who just don't respond to medication. Uh, perhaps those patients would respond to this specialized form of cognitive therapy that is mindfulness-based. Uh, but again, uh, while the results of the research are interesting and promising, there remains the issue that uh, there would have to be sufficient therapists who are sufficiently trained and skilled in this type of therapy in order for uh, a significant number of patients to benefit from it. And uh, that's something that we just can't count on at the moment, unfortunately. <clears throat> All right, next up on Psychiatry Today, uh, I've often talked on the show about the impact of mental illness and mental health issues for cardiac patients. And another such article caught my eye and says that feeling grateful may improve health for heart failure patients. So I thought, well, this is a wonderful, elegant look at the intersection between your mental state and your physical health. Uh, certainly fits in with the theme of this show, so let's take a look at what researchers found. Feeling grateful may help heart failure patients heal both physically and emotionally say United States researchers. Gratitude was linked to better sleep and mood, as well as lower levels of inflammation in people coping with heart failure. Previous studies have focused on the benefits of spirituality in general and have tied it to a better quality of life and better physical health. More than 5 million people in the United States suffer from heart failure, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Rates are expected to nearly triple in the next few decades as the population ages. Now, the uh, study was published in Spirituality in Clinical Practice. The study team included Deepak Chopra, an author and widely known proponent of alternative health. They recruited 186 patients from California cardiology clinics. All of them had stage B heart failure, meaning they had some heart dysfunction and swelling, but not more serious symptoms. The researchers say stage B is an important time to intervene as the damage to the heart may still be reversed. The participants assessed their own levels of gratitude, spiritual well-being, and self-efficacy, that is, the belief in their own ability to succeed at managing their heart function. The patients also rated their own depressive symptoms, sleep quality, and fatigue. Lastly, Researchers checked participants' blood for indicators of inflammation. 
Well, I think we'll take our next commercial break right here. We'll come back and discuss how the researchers analyzed this, this data and what conclusions they reached about the effect of gratitude on recovery from heart failure. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about how gratitude may improve outcomes for heart failure patients. Now, researchers analyzed the data, including patients' self assessments and ratings of their belief in their ability to recover, their depression symptoms, fatigue, and the, uh, they checked the patient's blood for indicators of inflammation. So they looked for relationships between gratitude and spiritual well-being in the symptoms that patients reported. What they found was that patients who were more grateful, had more gratitude, reported better sleep, less depression, less fatigue, higher self-efficacy, that is, again, the belief in their ability to succeed at managing their heart function, and, listen to this, lower indicators of inflammation. And that is something that is a physical measure, something quantifiable, something out of uh, someone's control. You can't just say to yourself, well, I'm going to lower my levels of inflammation. You know, that's something that the body is going to do. Now, spiritual well-being was tied to the same positive symptoms, but not to lower inflammation. Okay, so it was only those with the higher levels of gratitude who had lower levels of inflammation in their blood. Very interesting stuff. Now, um... The researchers found the link between improved health and spiritual well-being was at least partially explained 
by the role that gratitude specifically plays in spirituality. It was the gratitude aspect of spirituality that accounted for the effects of lower levels of inflammation, not just spirituality per se. There was also a sub-study in which some patients were assigned to add eight weeks of gratitude journaling to their usual treatment. They used gratitude journaling as a way to consciously cultivate gratitude with the aim of increasing its presence in the patient's lives. This sub-study found that patients who did the journal exercise had reduced indicators of inflammation and increased heart rate variability, which sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually a good thing. Um, if you have no heart rate variability, that's actually abnormal. Uh, so having more heart rate variability is another measure of reduced risk of problems with heart failure symptoms. And again, um, what they found was that after doing the gratitude journaling, heart rate variability increased compared to the readings at the beginning of the study. And then a comparison group that did not do the journaling exercise had no changes in these measures. Now, you may ask, well, what is gratitude journaling? And that literally means that you're keeping a journal and you're writing down uh, or rereading things that you are grateful for. And it could be literally anything. Uh, anything that you see as something positive in your life, write it down, review it, refer to it. I can give you a real-life example from my own practice. Many years ago, I had a patient who did this, and she would keep her gratitude journal and start with really, really basic things to be grateful for, like, I have my eyesight, I have my hearing, I have all four limbs, I have all ten digits. I mean, we're getting to the very, very basic, basic things that we all take for granted, but not all of us on this earth are lucky enough to have, and so they are things to be grateful for. And then, of course, she went on to uh, bigger things from there. But that just kind of gives you an idea. Um, and so apparently, in these heart failure patients anyway, this is a very powerful intervention. Again, they found that the gratitude aspect helped lower inflammation in the blood, not just spirituality. The importance of positive emotions to the recovery process is key to these findings of the study. Uh, these feelings are very important in keeping the balance between illness burden and a person's capacity to deal with the illness. And this is especially true for heart failure patients who often experience other illnesses as well, such as kidney disease, anemia, and diabetes. So indeed, it seems that a more grateful heart is a more healthy heart, and that gratitude journaling 
is an easy way to support cardiac health. All right. Well, I think the take-home point is that if this can help cardiac patients with a serious illness such as heart failure, then shouldn't we all be doing gratitude journaling and wouldn't that help all of us with our mental health? I think so. <clears throat> Next up on tonight's show, I have a psychiatry and the law update for you. This has to do with James Holmes, the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooter, the Batman killer who actually was studying brain disorders uh, before he himself was suffering from an episode of one and committed mass murder. He was growing volatile well before he put on a gas mask and body armor, strapped on a rifle, shotgun, pistol, and ammunition, and slipped into a midnight premiere of the Batman film The Dark Knight Rises. He was a sought-after neuroscientist in training, but he was falling apart. He told a classmate he wanted to kill people. He fell out of favor with his professors, suggested he find a new career. He stopped seeing his psychiatrist, then sent her text messages so threatening that she alerted University of Colorado campus police, who tragically were not able to get the municipal law enforcement authorities to intervene. He even mailed her his journal in a package with burned $20 bills. Months before Holmes opened fire on the audience on July 20, 2012, killing 12 and injuring 70 more in one of America's deadliest mass shootings, the 24-year-old doctoral student was preparing for violence. Stockpiled weapons, ammunition, tear gas grenades, and riot gear rigged his apartment to become a potentially lethal booby trap, cranking techno music in an apparent attempt to lure someone into opening his door. One neighbor who came to complain narrowly avoided a fiery explosion by walking away. Many observers hope Holmes's death penalty trial beginning Monday will finally show what twisted a seemingly dedicated scholar into a sadistic killer. Prosecutors have suggested he was angry over his academic decline, but anyone looking for a trigger or tipping point with mass killers is usually disappointed said J. Reed Malloy, a forensic psychiatrist at the University of California, San Diego, who says there's no such thing as someone snapping. What we know now is that even if a person is psychotic, they can still plan and methodically go about the preparations to carry out a mass murder. Mass violence is usually premeditated, following a path that begins with a personal grievance is complicated by narcissism and paranoia. But only one in five of these killers is psychotic. Psychosis is something Holmes knew all about. Before the shooting, he was preparing to give a class presentation on microRNA biomarkers that provide a biological basis for psychiatric and neurological disorders. About the same time, he was amassing deadly firepower, two Glock pistols, a shotgun, an AR-15 rifle, boxes upon boxes of ammunition. 
People who searched his apartment also found prescription medications for anxiety and depression, obviously not doing him any good. 50 cans of bottles of beer, while drinking alcohol won't help, will it? Paper shooting targets and a Batman mask. According to Denver defense attorney Iris Eitan, who initially represented Holmes but is no longer involved, he was absolutely out of his mind. She compared Holmes to schizophrenics she has defended. They are erratic and irrational. They hallucinate. <clears throat> Prosecutors say the meticulous plotting show Holmes was deliberate and calculated and that the evidence suggests he knew right from wrong. For example, Holmes searched online for rational insanity and took haunting selfies the night of the shooting, sticking out his tongue and smiling with a glock under his face. <clears throat> After an emotionally wrenching trial lasting four months or more, the twelve final jurors chosen from a pool of 9,000 will have to decide whether he was insane at the time. If so, he will be committed indefinitely to a state psychiatric hospital. If not, prosecutors will press for the death penalty over life in prison without parole. Now, his mother apparently had no idea what happened. How could this have happened to this uh, seemingly harmless college student without so much as a traffic ticket on his record? She uh, said that people think he is a monster, but he had a disease that changed his brain. And if she knows any more about what happened to him and suffering from mental illness, she is insane. Now, he was, he was shy as a teen, but graduated college um, with honors. He once mentored a schizophrenic as a summer camp counselor, and this may have inspired him to pursue brain research. Uh, but shortly after he began his graduate studies, things were falling apart. Uh, professors didn't want him in his classes, told him to pursue another course of action. And in the months before the shooting, he was seen uh, hanging around his area, drinking at bars, going online and soliciting for casual sex. So perhaps during the trial, We'll find out what happened. In any case, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you have a wonderful stress-free week until the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.